You're going to learn today. You're going to learn today. All right, all right, all right. Abolition. Abolition. Billy, Billy. Some men came to see the general just the other day. They call themselves uh, abolitionists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They say that this, uh, this per- person in Philadelphia called Thomas Paine sent them. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what they said? What they said? They said that they going to free all the Negroes. Yeah, that's the way it's going to come. It's going to come through their, their freedom, through their work. During the war, we met some abolitionists in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, uh, in Massachusetts uh-huh. and also uh, in, uh, in New Jersey. And them, ab- them abolitionists, well, they got a plan for freeing the Negroes. Billy, I'm with you. I think this is the way that we're going to get our freedom. Let them abolitionists work their man.
Abolition. You just heard Colonial Slaves Discuss Freedom, and that was followed up by the legendary group, the Staple Singers, I'll Take You There. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org and on all major podcast platforms. And we are also simulcast on the Black Talk Radio Network. This is what we do here at Abolition Today. You're going to learn today, and we will definitely take you there. My name is Yusuf Hassan. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Max Parthas. Peace, Max. Peace, Yusuf. I'm here at the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center in Sumter, South Carolina. And I'm ready to go, man. We got stuff to do today and this week. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So last week we had Louisiana Love, and that was one of the dopest shows ever. Shout out to all of our guests that we had on last week. We were joined by multiple abolitionists from California and Louisiana with their campaigns representing ACA3 in California and HB298 in Louisiana, Deep Red and Bright Blue States, both of which celebrated historic Senate wins. And ever since This episode is going to be a master class on the how, what, who, when, why, and where of contemporary constitutional slavery. So on June 15, 2022, the ACLU National will release the full 178-page bombshell report entitled Captive Labor, Exploitation of Incarcerated Workers. And I quote, Though this report centers on the gratuitously harsh conditions of contemporary prison labor, it is embedded in larger conversations about racism, sexism, the U.S. criminal legal system, 13th Amendment, and the ultimate morality of this country's vast network of prisons, jails, and detention facilities. So Max and I have been digging through the report, and we'll put out some major highlights you know, I was really prepared for this show, Max. I came in with about 20 pages of notes, and then I'm like, you know, I'm glad you pulled my coat and said, hey, we can't really dig into it until after they release it. But we're going to just put maybe one or two bites of uh, morsels, you know, out on the table. So it'll be our last broadcast before we hit the road on our way to North Carolina and Vermont. On June 17th, Max will be the plenary speaker at the Southern Appalachian Yearly Meeting and Association of the Religious Society of Friends, also known as the Quakers. After a dozen of years of working with the Quaker community, Max is hoping to see them rededicate themselves as traditional and present allies of the U.S. slavery abolitionist movement. Then from June 18th through the 21st, the abolitionist crew is rolling into the granddaddy of all exception clauses, Vermont for Juneteenth events, including Curtis Davis, Tribal Rain, Max Parthas, Yusuf Hassan, hey, I know that guy, and uh, many more. We'll have spoken word, a live panel discussion, meet and greet, 
and we'll broadcast Season 3, Episode 23 of Abolition Today, live from Vermont. We've got it all in Season 3, Episode 22. The facts, the momentum, the history, the music, the truth, and the voices of the ancestors brought back to life for a new generation. You may choose to look the other way, but after today, you can never again say that you did not know. So, after that whole mouthful there, Max, tell us about the opening track and how's your week been, brother? Oh, man, uh, the week has been crazy. I'll get to that in a second, but that opening track, man, you see how we started it, right? You're going to learn today. Yeah, you're gonna man, learn today. you're going to learn today. And then to listen to the ancestors, the reenactment of them talking about how they felt about the abolitionists. And we're here for the same reasons, mm-hmm. to do the same thing. We do have a plan. And things are happening, and you should put some faith in us because our track record shows we're getting things done. Uh, We are making the right connections. We're building the right networks. We're uh, providing the right resources. And if you look at these constitutions across the country, you'll see that we're doing something that I can't think of ever being done before since the 13th Amendment. Uh, We're changing constitutions in every state. Uh, This year, there's six of them on the ballot as of tomorrow, God willing. Uh, uh, and the Staple Sisters uh, singers, I, I'll take you there. Come on, man. That's <laughs> Give a us classic. A We're gonna take you there. Yeah. Just, just let right. us, It'll let get us you do moving. what we gotta do. Mm-hmm. Let us do what we gotta do. We'll take you there. I mean, if you know something that will end slavery tomorrow and change everybody's life by the end of the week, feel free to go ahead and do that. But this strategy we're putting together opens up a door that has never been opened before, and that's where slavery is not legal in the United States. We don't know what that looks like because we've never had it, and we're on our way towards it right now. So that's what's up with the intro. Um, The week has been crazy. All states are involved with Juneteenth events, and unlike the majority, Freedom Day or celebrating freedom because that is not what really happened. Instead, right. they are providing proper information, education, and presentations on the issue. So I'm looking forward to being a part of that. And as a matter of fact, Yusuf, this is the first Juneteenth in, I don't know, a decade and a half where I haven't felt like we're not taking two, we're taking two steps backwards. I always felt like, you know, Juneteenth would come, we did all this hard work, uh, re-educating people, providing the proper narrative, and then Juneteenth comes along and poop, we take two steps backwards as everybody celebrates something that never actually happened the way they think it happened. And this time it feels like we're making headway and not taking steps back. Uh, the ACLU report is one example of that. That is, man, it's like a, a tactical nuke we're about to drop up in here. I'm yeah, man. You. <laughs> you know? Yeah, man. So a couple of things to, uh, to, to, to throw out there for a second. So you made mention of the call-in information with Senate Committee on Elections and Constitutional Amendments that's happening tomorrow out in California. Yes. Uh, we'll be providing this information. It'll be on our page, and we'll also probably mention it a few more times throughout the show. Uh, that'll be at 9.30 a.m., and I'm sure that's uh, Pacific time. Uh, well, uh, 9.30 a.m. Give them a little. Uh, tomorrow, California ACA 3 goes into the Senate, and they're allowing people to call in to testify. Uh, 9.30 a.m. California time, which is 
1230 Eastern. 1230 Eastern. Yeah, 1230 Eastern. So if you want to testify on behalf of ACA3 ending slavery in California and get us across this finish line and go on public record and become a part of public history, then call in at 877-226-8163. That's 877-226-8163. The access code is 648-862. As Yusuf mm-hmm. said, you can find it on our page, and you can also rewind later on the replay to hear the numbers. Yusuf? And also, they, I'm sure it'll be on their website, Abolish Slavery in California. Dot, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it's .com or .org. Uh, the other thing, because, Max, you know we always have new listeners, and you probably just dropped a bombshell on a lot of people when you talk about Juneteenth. Is you know Everybody's been celebrating something that didn't happen. So can you just enlighten them really quickly on that? Uh, well, Juneteenth is a celebration of the day that the last slave and slave people in America were informed that they had been freed through the Emancipation Proclamation, um, it, which happened in 1863, of course, and they didn't find out until June 1866, June 19th, when General Granger uh, rode up with the Union Army into Galveston, Texas, to not only let them know that was the case, but to enforce it. Um, unfortunately, what people don't know is that there was a plan to go from chattel slavery to another form of slavery already in play, and it had been initiated in 1777 with Vermont, and that was by constitutionalizing slavery and involuntary servitude as a punishment for crime. And so within months, I think it was only just a couple months uh, in Texas, they converted from chattel slavery to convict leasing, where they would have people on sugar farms, sugarcane farms, and basically doing everything they had done as a slave uh, when they were enslaved. So it didn't really end slavery. It allowed them to transition to what they thought, I guess to some crazy degree, was a more humane method. So rather than slaving four million people, instead they would enslave 200,000. And the problem with that is that it created a system where, uh, like the book title by Jay Mancini says, one dies, get another. Uh, humanity lost all value for them. They would literally work people to death, and they would go out hunting uh, African Americans using Jim Crow laws and convict leasing laws and uh, pig laws and black codes, mm-hmm. and, and just incarcerating them as a source of forced labor, men, women, and children. And some of the death rates in the states that were using convict leasing was as high as 30%. 30% of people who were incarcerated for whatever the reason, uh, whether it be uh, not having a dollar in your pocket, owing a debt, uh, spitting on the ground, cursing in front of a white woman, whatever they said it was, you ended up getting mm-hmm. to death in a place like that. It was a 30% chance you would die there. So uh, as of three, four, four, as of four days ago, Lord, <laughs> or it, you, you, you already know who that is, right? Yeah, of course. As of, as of uh, four days ago, we put a billboard in Galveston, Texas from endtheexception.com, right at the home of Juneteenth. And this billboard, it's a huge thing, has a picture on it of three different stages. The first stage, 1865, with chattel slavery. The second stage is uh, 
convict leasing, and then in 2022 with the what people call mass incarceration. It's basically the same image from 1865 to uh, 2022, and it's on a big-ass billboard in Galveston, Texas right now with InTheException.com on it. So, yeah, we are celebrating something that didn't happen in the way we thought it happened. And it's true that many people got their freedom, and the first thing they did was go looking for lost family members. But they did it in an environment where they became like beasts of prey. Whenever the system needed more people, they would simply go out and hunt themselves. That's a great breakdown, Max. And the only thing that I would add to that is uh, Frederick Douglass's famous speech. So over the course of 25 years, he went all over the country and seeing the effect of this Emancipation Proclamation. And he gave his famous speech in 1888. It was entitled, I denounce the so-called Emancipation Proclamation as a stupendous fraud because he got to see what actually happened, exactly what, what you were just stating, Max, you know, how he broke it down. And he said, look, this is, this is slavery, what's going on. You know, you just, it's not chattel. It's, it's not where they, an individual has ownership rights not only on a person, but all, everything about the person, any children that the person has, you know, uh, just their entire life. So they found a way to do it through penal codes, and that's the legacy that, that, let, that uh, exists all the way up until this day. So definitely a great breakdown of uh, how we got here. And you know, then we looked at – oh, I'm sorry. Uh, we ought to read a little bit out of that speech, actually, maybe a, pa- uh, a paragraph of there uh, so people can get a little gist of what he said and how serious it was because he broke it down to the last molecule in there, uh, even showing the laws that he was speaking about. Um, he said that every northern man – who visits the old master class, the landowners and the landlords of the South, is told by the old slaveholders with a great show of virtue that they are glad that they are rid of slavery and would not have the slave system back if they could, that they are better off than they ever were before and much more of the same tenor. Thus, northern men come home duped and go on a mission of duping others by telling the same pleasing story. There are very good reasons why these people would not have slavery back if they could, reasons far more creditable to their cunning than to their conscience. With slavery, they had some care, responsibility of the physical well-being of their slaves. Now they have as firm a grip on the freedman's labor as when he was a slave, and without any burden of caring for his children or himself, the whole arrangement is stamped with fraud and is supported by hypocrisy. And I hear it now on this Emancipation Day, denounce it as a villainous swindle and invoke the press, the pulpit, and the lawmaker to assist in exposing it and blotting it out forever. That was Frederick Douglass speaking about the Emancipation Proclamation on the anniversary uh, in 1888. You might be on mute. I can't be on mute. Oh, there you go. <laughs> just Yeah, just hearing that, it's like I'm hearing it for the first time. And, of course, I've heard it dozens mm-hmm. of times. But it's just so powerful, those words. And then we know that 
we we uh, introduced the slavery abolition bill. The proposed 28th Amendment was introduced on the Senate floor, uh, spot, sponsored by Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon and supported by Bernie and a few others and uh, Nakima Williams, Congresswoman Nakima Williams out of uh, Georgia. And to undercut it, we know what the great Joe Biden has has done to where he signed into law on the very day, making Juneteenth a federal holiday. So it's in one in in on on one side of the government we're introducing a bill saying slavery still exists and we want to correct this to where it's not still in the constitution and then the chief executive passes a bill giving people the impression that slavery is over. And I think that's one of the things, Max, that causes all of the confusion. Yes. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't like there was a big uproar to have Juneteenth declared a holiday. Uh, the only reason that it came into being in that way was to counter the very bill that we would, we were putting out on that day. And the White House knew about it in advance. I know for a fact that our uh, people had already spoken with the White House, or uh, at least the vice president's office was sure of uh, At least the vice I'm president, sure for sure. Right, mm-hmm. for sure. And so was Nancy Pelosi. They all knew that we were about to put this bill out with a lot of pomp and circumstance, with all kinds of stuff going on across the country. And then two days before that, pow, guess what we're going to make a holiday? Because we want you to believe slavery ended. We want you to celebrate the end of slavery and have freedom fest, things like that, when that did not happen. See, this the problem with this, and this is why a Democratic president would try to C-block us in this way, um, is mm-hmm. because this points out accountability. Somebody is responsible for this. This is not something that was done by mistake. It wasn't unintended consequences. They knew what they were doing mm-hmm. in the beginning, and they know what they're doing mm-hmm. right now. And it's a crime against humanity. I see we got a call. I think it's Alonzo, man. You want to go ahead and bring him in real quick? Yeah, man, because, you know, we've been worried about the brother. Haven't heard from him in months. Yo, what's up, Alonzo? What's happening with everybody? You know, it's always a pleasure to uh, get a chance to uh, talk to the brothers behind enemy line. And uh, I just generally uh, introduce myself. Alonzo, uh, I'm calling from uh, LST, which stands for uh, Louisiana Last Slave Plantation. And um, and like I said, it's always a pleasure to get an opportunity to, uh, to talk to you brothers and uh, let the people on the ground or whatnot know what's actually going on. So we're still dealing with our non-unanimous uh, jury scheme or whatnot. Um, uh, we're also dealing with uh, gerrymandering hey, hey, laws down Lonzo. here. Before you get too in deep, I want to ask you one question, okay? Did, did you hear that? Did you hear that ending slavery is on the ballot this year in Louisiana? It's on the ballot this year, it, and that's one of the accomplishments. The ballot, yeah. That's one of the accomplishments of the brothers uh, and me with uh, decarcerating Louisiana. It was uh, 2018. And we was able to, uh, to start the movement in 18. And so that's one of the accomplishments that, we, that, that we're going to get because uh, a lot of people don't realize that a lot of these laws 
never even got voted on by the people, you know. Like the people never got an opportunity to vote on the non-unanimous uh, Jim Crow jury scheme, which was held in uh, 1898. So uh, that's a big accomplishment or whatnot. Uh, we started, like I said, we started in 18. We got Curtis Davis, amongst other brothers, a prominent justice of initiative. And, uh, man, that's a, that's a huge accomplishment. So, so right now what we want to do, we want to probably give as much publicity to the issue because uh, everyday life with everybody, they really don't have an opportunity to actually know what actually goes on, you know, until you just caught up in the system. Yeah, that is definitely a huge accomplishment, man, to think that the deep, dark South Mississippi is on the ballot this year where the voters get to decide whether or not slavery should be legal. Um, it took a lot of work from the people that you've mentioned and more. Man, you got a right. lot yeah. of nasty noise in the background there. Yeah. But yeah. I, I understand where you at, brother. Hey, is yeah. there anything you, you want to tell people me? real quick? I just I just want to just uh, continue to push uh, the non-unanimous uh, jury scheme, which is uh, a system that was that was that was started in uh, 1898, and we still got a lot of brothers that that's suffering under this system. They was they was uh, convicted under this system, so that's very important that we still living in a Jim Crow uh, era, uh, and uh, we just want to just give as much as uh, publicity on these issues as I can uh, to let society know what we're experiencing in Louisiana. No doubt. Uh, appreciate you as always. And it's good to know that you're all right out there, brother. Uh, he, when yeah, he's speaking yeah. of that non-unanimous jury, he means, uh, what was the name of that case, you said? Uh, uh, Ramos. Ramos versus Louisiana. Ramos versus Louisiana. Originally, Louisiana allowed their uh, people to be sentenced to life prison or even life prison or even death on only 10 jurors. Uh, so you could be... Uh, two people didn't even have to vote to want to kill you, and you'd end up going to prison for life or death penalty, and it was found to be unconstitutional. So they went back and tried to make it retroactive, but the Supreme Court wouldn't make it retroactive. So now they're moving to try to do that same thing because it's, like you said, like 1,500, 1,600 people who are there behind these Jim Crow juries that were all white juries uh, where they were railroaded into these prisons and their lives are being lost. So, yes, push more for that, brother. All right, I want to bring in another caller. I see you've got a hand up, so Lonzo, we're going to have you on. Uh, hang on with us, all right? All right. Scotty Reed. Scotty Reed. All right. Hey, what's up, Scotty Reed? Matt? What's up, Scotty? Welcome to Abolition Scotty Day, Reed. Hey, good to hear y'all, bros. Um, but I just wanted to call in and make a real quick comment about Juneteenth because, Max, you know I've been real critical of Juneteenth over the years along with you in saying that it's just reinforcing a lie that slavery was abolished when it was not. Just read the 13th Amendment. But I do want to recognize as I've learned more about it by going to a Juneteenth event to spread the word that slavery wasn't abolished. There has been a small group of people who have been pushing for it for years, and it was led by a 93-year-old black woman um, from Fort Worth, Texas, named Opal Lee. Uh, that's O-P-A-L and Lee, L-E-E. And she fought mm-hmm. for it her entire life, man, and, and, and white races in Texas burned down 
her family's house when she was just 12 years old because they didn't think she should have it. And so I just want want to put on the record that it was a, it was a small group who have been pushing for this for decades, just like it's been a small group of people uh, nationwide that have been pushing to actually finish the job of abolishing slavery. And I think we should be using this opportunity, these Juneteenth opportunities. And if you are an event organizer out there, you need to have a, a modern-day abolitionist part of your program, even if you just give them 10 minutes to speak and, and to point out the fact that slavery was never abolished. That would be very helpful. But I do want to acknowledge that, yeah, a lot of people been celebrating that, whether it was a holiday or not recognized by the federal government. And, and it is, I, I do agree that possibly it could have been a distraction, you know, knowing they got these other bills that's actually going to abolish slavery. But I do, again, don't want to um, not recognize the hard work that a few dedicated uh, people who really believe in it, you know, uh, um, I mean, it was a day of freedom. It meant from, um, you know, chattel slavery and a lot of people, you know, fought and died for that, for that little bit of freedom that we got now. And, but we, we just need this generation, you know, uh, to, to take us across the finish line. That's all I wanted to say. Thanks, Scotty. Um, that's no, why thank I you like for that information. We're taking a step forward this year because people are doing that. They're having abolitionist events, they're having abolitionist speakers, and some of the biggest places in the country, uh, like here in South Carolina, we have abolitionist speakers coming in to their uh, event uh, there. So that's that is uh, the truth. As far as whether that small group is responsible, I'm, I'm familiar with uh, Opali and whether or not they're responsible for becoming a holiday. I really doubt if they were responsible for. It. I mean. I know they were pushing for it for forever. To make a national holiday takes a lot more than a few people wanting it to happen when half the country don't even know what it is. White people still don't even haven't figured it out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. If anything, why didn't they make the ratification of the 13th Amendment a holiday? Why isn't the passage of the 13th Amendment a holiday? For for century right. and a half now, they've ignored that completely. And out of nowhere, here comes Juneteenth which is not even something that was officially an occurrence on the books. <laughs> you know? Well, they did have, have that 150-year anniversary fake celebration where they wouldn't even share the text of the 13th Amendment. I mean, we, we covered that, you know, on yes. air and uh, what have you. But when I say a small group of people, man, I'm talking like, look at the abolitionist movement today. When, we, when me and you uh, met, and start talking about it in 2012. And look how far a small group of people have, have actually got a bill in Congress to abolish <laughs> slavery and have actually gotten state constitutions to abolish slavery. Max, you know mm-hmm. it ain't a whole lot of y'all. It ain't no 10,000. It ain't 100,000. <laughs> nope. <laughs> That's million. true. So a right. small group of dedicated people can get shit done, and y'all doing it. It's true. It's true. And, you know, speaking of that, between you and Yusuf, I have been broadcasting a program of this type as of tomorrow for 10 years. So it's the anniversary wow. tomorrow. It'll be 10 years I've been broadcasting this type of program on air. 
But I'll continue yeah. to listen, man, and, and, and you know, I got nothing but love for all the abolitionists out there. Peace. For sure. Peace. Good talking Scotty to you, Reed. Scotty. Um, with that being Scotty said, Scotty Reed, man, the, uh, go ahead. Well, we give him a quick shout out. Scotty course, Reed, yes. you know, he goes back to New Abolition Radio with you. And then, of course, when we talk about one of our sponsors being the Black Talk Radio Network, that's Scotty Reed right there. So shout out to right. him for calling in and always supporting the show. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. All right. Um, so let's play a clip which breaks down what we're talking about even more. Uh, this is from Stani TV where he discusses how America never abolished slavery. It's going to be followed by Havia Mighty Thirteenth. You're really going to enjoy this. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. And you're going to learn today. We'll be right back. Abolition, Abolition. Today. Abolition. How many people know when America actually abolished slavery? If you guessed January 1863 when the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect, you'd be wrong. If you guessed April 1865 when the Civil War ended and the Union won, you'd be wrong. But if you guessed December 1865 when the 13th Amendment was ratified, you would still be wrong. Here's the dark secret they don't teach you in school. America never abolished slavery. The 13th Amendment does not abolish slavery. All it says is that you can't enslave somebody unless it's as a punishment for a crime where the party shall have been duly convicted. And guess who gets to decide what's a crime and what's a due conviction? That's right, slavery is still legal in America. So now that we know that America never actually abolished slavery and relegated slavery to those who committed a crime, all you had to do was not commit a crime, right? Well, people don't realize what actually happened at this point because now you had hundreds of thousands of formerly enslaved people who had no wealth, no property, no access to resources out on the streets. That whole 40-acre and a mule thing didn't quite work out. Meanwhile, the Homestead Act was passed, giving white peasants from Europe millions of acres of land for free. But it got worse for formerly enslaved black people. The Civil War ended in 1865. Enter the Vagrancy Act of 1866. What was the Vagrancy Act? Well, I'll tell you. The Vagrancy Act said that anyone who appeared to be homeless, i.e. former slaves, would be captured, arrested, put in balls and chains, and forced to work for free. In other words, they were still enslaved, except now that institution was further protected by the Constitution. So now we know the 13th Amendment didn't actually abolish slavery. And we know that vagrancy laws put the formerly enslaved back into balls and chains, now protected by the Constitution as legalized slavery. But surely the Supreme Court struck down these racist codes, right? Well, this is where it gets really nasty. In 1875, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act to protect black Americans and ensure they had equal justice under the law. The government argued that the 13th and 14th Amendments ended slavery and that every single American, regardless of skin color, deserved equal access. The Supreme Court disagreed. In an 8-to-1 ruling, the Supreme Court held that slavery was still legal and those in prison were actual slaves and they did not have equal access. Moreover, racial discrimination was also legal. It wasn't until 1964 that this was overturned by the 1964 Civil Rights Act. That's right, for a century after the Civil War ended, slavery was the official position of the United States for those in prison. And it gets worse. With the end of Jim Crow, racists had to find a new way to perpetuate prison slavery. If we were to go by stats, prison is a goldmine camp with no buybacks. Nigga, it's a wizard in the system holding all my blacks. It started in 1640. Shackles around my ankles. Melanin meant that I can't go to schools or read Cause who's gonna serve my master? Also the pastor describes all my people last The sheep who exist to keep the land We feed the economy, reap all the crops But then feed on it modestly, consciously knowing you're less of that 
Lightest skin means that you're better now. So you in the house taking whips and probably dick. Cause well, you a fetish now. Meanwhile, I'm grateful for all that I'm giving. I'm picking this cotton in rhythm. I pray for a lot of the living. Escaping is probably a sin. And if God ever finds out that I want my freedom, well, damn, then God's gonna call in the rest. Two horses with opposite mass. Those nooses, they up in the trees and I'm hanging, but I'll never fall like my pants. Then came the 13th Amendment, written in 1865. It says, slavery is over, accepted, pay for doing crime. And then the things that they made illegal are things you associate with people who now education isn't equal. And they getting paid enough to eat, so we stealing and jugging and shit. We need to be fully equipped. The system, the new slave master, brought in to stop us and bullying shit. Cause before we were stealing and jugging, the laws we was breaking was loitering. We go to the bend and we can't pay to find out the jail is who your employer is. This voyage is super intentional. You used to be students in medical. The more than indigenous blacks were the smartest and honestly truest professionals. Literally teaching you about chemicals. My history isn't viewed on a pedestal. Try to tell me only few of my ancestors had anything to offer. If we wasn't strong, you would never bother. If we wasn't awesome, you'd never put all of your resources in just to get to conquer. If we ain't a problem, then why would you want all the youngest who black not to have a father? Cause slavery showed black youth for mad years that whiteness is right. Your mom getting fucked, your dad getting whipped. But white is the light, and sometimes master blesses you for being a good slave And kills you off if you a bad one For black mothers tell their daughters fuck the master And they tell their sons they can't run Mama raised the girls independent And she raised the boys out of fear These days black women representing the struggle that these black boys trying to clear Man, we have so much work to do You just heard America Never Abolished Slavery by Steiny TV, and that was followed by Javier Mighty 13th. Welcome back to Abolition Today with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan, and if this is your first time tuning in, I bet you're saying, wow, this show is just so much different than anything else we listen to because we drop the knowledge and we also get you moving with powerful music. And remember, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, Abolition Today, to hear music like that. And uh, you're definitely going to learn today. You're learning. You're <laughs> learning. <laughs> it's it's not that you're going to learn, you're learning, and we're going to keep teaching. Uh, Max, the first thing I want to say, I love his delivery when he was talking about the 13th or talking about ending slavery. He posed the question, oh, you may say it in it this time, and that time. And then he changed his voice inflection to almost lead people <laughs> to think that it ended in 1865. And then he, he pulled the rug out from under him and said, nope, you'd be wrong there too. You know, so even in that, you being the wordsmith, I know you could really appreciate that. Yeah, I love the buildup that he did uh, to pull the rug right from underneath people because it never ended. So all of these different dates that we keep describing to the end of slavery didn't actually happen that way. It was a transference of power. The power went from the individual, uh, which is what the South fought for, to be able to own people. And it was transferred mm-hmm. to the federal government and state governments where they instead were the ones who ended up owning people through the exception clause that they put in. 
you know, one thing I do want to get in this time, because we didn't really mention much of it last week. This time, we got to mm-hmm. drop some of these bombs from this ACLU report. Just a couple of them to give you an idea of what's about to happen in three days. In three days, mm-hmm. the ACLU is re- releasing its national report. Uh, it's titled uh, Captive Labor. Uh, and we've got a chance to read through some of it, man. And it's some it's pretty powerful. As a matter of fact, you started at the front of the show talking about, you know, I had 20 pages. Because <laughs> you know? it's, it's like that, man. This is going to blow everything out of the water. And it's only about one aspect of modern-day constitutional slavery. It's about the prison labor mm-hmm. aspect and the conditions that they exist in. Uh, but it does point you in the right direction. And uh, as a matter of fact, let me get one of mine out of the way right off the bat. And this, Scotty, I'm glad you're listening to this because you're going to be smiling from ear to ear. In all this work that we've been doing all these years about trying to tell people the importance of this, let me tell you what the number one key recommendation is from the ACLU National in regards to captive labor and forced labor without exceptions. Number one. Repeal federal and state constitution exception clauses allowing slavery and involuntary servitude to be used as punishment for a criminal conviction. Can the church say amen? Amen. <laughs> amen. Amen. You know what I'm saying? Number 12. The number one. I mean, that's huge. huge. That's huge. That's really the huge Lord hearing that. We're going to tear your kingdom down. That's right. Reverend, yeah, Dr. Caesar, uh, Reverend Dr. Shirley Caesar. That's it right there, man. That is huge, Max. That's huge, man. Um, because now you have all these legal scholars, these academics, uh, politicians, all going to be pouring over this. Activists just pouring over 177 pages of this. Uh, because it opens up mm-hmm. so many doors, it, it connects so many dots about what's happening. It drops names, people, places, things, all of that is in here. And uh, when you're talking about captive punish, uh, captive labor, this is the document. A lot of people have been waiting for this to come out. And you only got three more days, so Christmas is about to hit the abolitionist movement. <laughs> I know you felt like it was Christmas. You're like, I need to open my gifts, Max. What do you mean I can't talk oh, about Max. it? Oh, <laughs> Max. Man, I'm telling you, I had my phone turned off, and I was just digging, and and like I said, I was already at 20 pages of notes, you know, and I can't wait till next week when we're in Vermont. I'm going to, you know, polish that off really good, break it down to about a nice 10-minute presentation that, you know, I'll give to the people next week of just summarizing. It's just so much powerful stuff in there, you right. know, and, and you- I mean, they bring in they, – they bring in receipts. They name in names. You know, all of that. All of that. Um, all right. I'll tell you what I'll do. I got one more that I'm going to share. That's my limit. And okay. you got a couple. So I'll, let me do my one more since you mentioned in the receipts. And then the mm-hmm. next is on you. They say, sure. at, the same, at the same time, incarcerated workers produce real value for state prisons and state governments. The system's primary beneficiaries nationally Incarcerated workers produce more than $2 billion a year in goods and commodities and over $9 billion a year in services for the maintenance of prisons where they are warehoused. 
even though prison labor is not what is driving mass incarceration in the United States, incarcerated workers' labor does partially offset the staggering cost of our country's bloated prison system. When they say staggering cost, an example would be Rikers Island, where right now on Rikers Island, in a pre-trial detainee facility, it costs $560,000 a year to hold a single person in a place where over 95% of the inmates are black. $506,000 a single year to incarcerate somebody. Could you imagine if even just a portion of that money was funneled into the communities from which they're robbing people's lives and freedoms? Yusuf? You might be on mute again. I don't know how I keep doing that, but it makes me, when you talk about Rikers Island, it makes me think of an article that just came out in the New York Post, and it's sort of like a follow-up of an article that came out a few weeks ago about the federal court takeover of New York City jails looms, stakeholders' Rikers plan. And, you know, we think of the horrible conditions that exist there, the violence, the the health care exposure, you know, it's all the things that goes on there. And then when you hear $500, yeah, $556,000 for each person over there, and you're like, where the hell is the money going? Who's getting this money? Because you sure don't see it. You know, when you see the horrible food, you know, when you have, you know, 15 people packed into, you know, a uh, two-person cell, you know, all of these types of things. It, it's it's crazy thinking about it, you know, and just to hear $560,000, you know, where we've, we've had uh, Dr. Alfonso Stewart come on, the, come on, he called us from Rikers Island, he told us, you know, if he needs medical attention or a person needs medical attention, they basically have to assault an officer in order to get medical attention. And, of course, that assault is going to come with a severe beatdown, so they're going to need medical attention on top of the medical attention that they already had, that they already needed. You know, so it's just really crazy hearing that. And so what you just stated from the report is just so, again, powerful. This is so powerful. They're generating $2 billion a year in goods and commodities and over and 9, $9 billion, billion in services. services. Yeah. Staggering, $11 billion. That's more money than, you know, the vast majority of countries in the world. They gross domestic product. $11 billion. And that's just one part of it. That's just the labor part, <laughs> you know? That's right. not counting the exploitation to fines and fees and commissaries and where there are captive customers that have to purchase particular goods at exorbitant prices or they have to pay exorbitant prices for phone calls or even just to have money transferred back and forth. Remember Jamelia telling us about how in order to get uh, what she say, in order to give five hundred dollars to Sam when he was in prison, she had to send like seven fifty. That's how much they're robbing people. And see, that ties right into 
one of the comments I wanted to make about the report. You know, there was this one sentence that just jumped out at me that just really tell you how well-crafted this thing is. So here's the sentence, and it blew my mind when I read it. So it says, prison labor is designed to benefit primarily public entities that capitalize on a vulnerable population that is at once a captive labor force and a captive consumer base. So when I read that, I was like, wow. Not only are they, yeah, not only are they <laughs> using the people for their labor, but they're the consumers of the labor. So it's like you're paying for your own exploitation. The primary beneficiaries of the labor of incarcerated workers are federal, state, and local governments. Federal and state governments offset budget shortfalls by forcing incarcerated laborers to work to maintain the very prisons that confine them. Laying it out. Max, you might like be I said, this time. No, I'm not oh. muted. I'm speechless. <laughs> you yeah, know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's a pause for effect. Yeah, man. Like, they're what? using periods at the end and making declarative statements based on the facts. Because they've done the research and uh, uh, they, they've crunched the numbers. They've interviewed both inmates and employees. They've checked all of the records. I mean, they did everything that you expect somebody who's researching this to do. And they've come to conclusions. And these conclusions are declarative statements. Mm-hmm. This is what they're doing. It's not, it's not if or might be. This is what they are doing. It's why it's set up this way. And they connect it all to the 13th Amendment, which makes it all legal. This is huge, man. This is like, yeah. It, it, it really huge. is. And the last thing I want to say about it, so you came up with something that you had written not too long ago entitled From the Lies We Tell Through Omission. And I'm going to read from what you wrote and what you wrote captures the nature of what they've found in their re- in their report. You and it's regarding convict leasing, the thing that's always left out when we start talking about slavery. And this is why people can't really tell, or they don't understand how slavery didn't and how it transitioned. And convict leasing is that link that they always leave out. So you wrote. Convict leasing is one of the most understudied and overlooked aspects of the African diaspora. If one reads the history books, the dates it began are wrongly listed. Some say it began in 1884 or 1883. Others say it began in 1866. The date and idea that it ended are also wrongly listed. Some say 1928. Others say 1910. The fact is convict leasing did not end. It became a new form of slavery as it was intended to be. Prisons are leasing out prisoners to private industries right now. At one time in the late 90s here in South Carolina, where you reside, women in prisons were manufacturing Victoria's Secret apparel for 28 cents an hour. Companies like AT&T have had call centers manned by prisoners inside the prisons. Other companies like Starbucks, 
Whole Foods, and even McDonald's have used prisoners' labor, paying them pennies. Many prisons today are factories built into the prisons themselves. They don't just make license plates. They make everything from furniture to U.S. missile components, even fighting fires in California for less than $2 a day. No health care, no rights, no OSHA, no union, and no benefits. And a government commercial that came out in 2015, we played that here on the show, prison labor was happily touted as best-kept secret and cheap labor, a commercial aimed at private businesses and asked them to use convict labor instead of traditional labor. Their selling point went like this. They don't take days off. There are no holiday breaks. No one has to worry about babysitters. And commuting to work is as easy as walking down the hall. So you're gonna this this was what Max wrote and from, uh, from the lies we tell yeah, two thousand eighteen mm-hmm. from the lies we tell through omission and you're gonna hear the ACLU's take on very similar research that they came across. It's just gonna be a bombshell when it's when it's released, Max. Yeah, definitely. Uh we're gonna level up real quick. Uh, I think it won't be a problem for our states to finally start getting the resources that they need in order to get these jobs done. Uh, And it's likely going to be the ACLU that's going to be helping with a lot of that work. Uh, And I'm looking forward to it uh, for sure. Me too. Yes. And uh, we'll be breaking it down at the Richard Kemp Center in Burlington, Vermont on the uh, 19th, uh, on the 18th and 19th. So if you want to hear, uh, Yusuf, break it down for you live. Come on down to Vermont, Burlington, Vermont, and uh, check us out at the Richard Kemp Center. We're going to put up all the flyers for the different days' events on our page, Abolition Today on Facebook, so make sure you check us out there uh, so you'll know where to go. Don't have me come out to Vermont, me, Tribal Yusuf, and uh, Brother Curtis, Curtis, as well as others, mm-hmm. and y'all not there to meet us talking about I didn't know. <laughs> You know. Right. <laughs> now you know. <laughs> All right, Yusuf. Yeah, in fact, uh, they even have something going on on the 17th before we even get there. From It's it's called Time to Break the Chains, Friday, June 17th, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. It's the campaign launch and community cookout at the First Unitarian University Society of Burlington. Uh, They give the address as 152 Pearl Street. That's where the campaign launch is going to be. We'll start a press conference and move into a free community barbecue. Who doesn't love barbecue? There will be few food, music, remarks from the Vermont Racial Justice Alliance and VIA directors. Lawn signs, stickers, and T-shirts will be available. And Ben and Jerry's will be there to make the afternoon more awesome. I need to change my flight. <laughs> right, <Ben and> <laughs> Free donations, gratefully accepted. And that's it for that event. I was looking for, oh, I did mention 11, 8, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., but they also say 10.30 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. Get there early, stay the entire time, get you some free barbecue and some free Ben and Jerry's. And get educated. And that, too. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> we won't be there on the 17th. I'll be in North Carolina that day. Uh, 
I'm the plenary speaker for the same uh, yearly gathering there, which is the gathering of the Friends uh, Quakers. And it's going to be at the Warren Wilson College on the 17th. So if you're in North Carolina, uh, come on down to the Warren Wilson College for a same as gathering, uh, their yearly gathering. And uh, I'll be giving a 90-minute presentation of both spoken word poetry and speaking on abolition. If you've seen me before, you already know how I do. I mix it all together. So uh, come on down and check it out. You see, yeah, you get 90 minutes. 90 oh, minutes? Man. 90 Ooh. whole minutes. And I get to make a visual presentation. <laughs> wow. Wow. You don't want to miss that. Trust me. Trust yeah. me. You don't want to miss 90 minutes of max. And uh, well, which part of North Carolina is that in? Um, That is in Swannanoa. Swannanoa, Never heard of it. North Carolina. It's uh. In the middle of nowhere in North Carolina. <laughs> oh, come on out to Swannanoa, North Carolina. No disrespect now, now to the Yeah, I have to look that up because I've never even heard of that. You know, not that I know much about North Carolina. I know the major cities. Well, you know, I've been working with these Quakers now for a long time. Remember when they brought the white, uh, racist white supremacists here to Columbia, South Carolina, and we told them how bad things we were going to get, and the governor told us, stay home and just let the racist white supremacists come and take over the capital, right? And instead, right. we got all these different organizations, even the gangs, the Bloods and the Crips, all got together to oppose them coming to our city. And literally, uh, they ended up kicking their asses out of town, like literally kicked their asses out of town, and they ain't been back for their yearly parade since. Um, but we had a couple of the Quakers come in as human rights witnesses on uh, what was occurring, mm-hmm. and they were just their minds were blown. And we broke down to them what they were seeing in relations to uh, slavery and human trafficking, as it's allowed through the 13th Amendment, and the connections to that. So e- since then, and even before that, I was uh, in a conference call with a lot of the Quakers who were involved in criminal justice reform. And they invited me to come speak. And that was basically, from what I understand, the first time slavery abolitionists and Quakers got together since the antebellum period to discuss how to deal with this. And I'm hoping at this event, they'll finally, as a body, decide to take those traditional stances of becoming abolition-oriented within the Quaker community. So that's what I'm hoping to see this time. That would be great to have that happen. So just checking the map, uh, Swannanoa is about 10 miles east of Asheville, North Carolina. All right. And that's a a popular tourist location. So if you know where Asheville is, you will uh, be able to get to Swannanoa. Sharon just sent me a message saying, Swannanoa is near Asheville. Uh, You suggested the homework. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Hey, well, uh, we got so a lot I of news. I just learned today. <laughs> got a, we got a lot of news and a few more tracks that we're going to be playing throughout the evening here. Um, I did want to talk about the DOJ's investigation of Louisiana. You, you mind if we do that first and then we go into our music break? Sure. Let's go for it. Yeah. For those that don't aren't familiar, they had this instance a couple years ago where this brother by the name of Ronald Green in Louisiana was stopped by the state police out there. And uh, he was killed, literally beaten. But on the 
official records, they claimed it was a car accident, telling his family that he died in a chase with the police in a car accident. Um, and for a couple of years, it was hidden like that. Now, the, all the way up to probably the district attorney all knew that this was not what happened until the video came out, thanks to courageous reporters uh, who uh, covered that story. And they got the video of the police, the state police, beating him to death, tasing him, dragging his body around, uh, just the most inhumane thing you could ever imagine. And because of that now, the Department of Justice has decided to investigate the entire state police uh, for patterns or practices uh, of this outright racism. Because, you know, it was all white police, state police, with this black man beating him to death Mm -hmm. and tasing him to death. Not in a car accident. It wasn't how he got his bones broken. It was because of them. And then they put him in the car and called it a car accident. You said? I just needed to take a breath. Just hearing that, you know, it's not the first time hearing it, but just to think of the trauma that he went through, you know, with doing that. And I remember... You know, the different troopers bragging about certain you – know, one guy, I forgot what he said. He said he was bleeding all over the place, and it's just all kinds of crazy remarks that the officer was making on this uh, audio report. You know, and while it's good to hear that the DOJ is going to investigate them, but what usually happens, Max, when the DOJ investigates? That paper tiger, um, they usually make some suggestions, and that's the end of that. They don't even talk about it anymore. And the suggestions never, ever get implemented implemented anyway. Uh, The DOJ is basically a paper tiger. It's just there to make it look like they did something. It's the police investigating themselves is what it is. And it sounds good on paper, and you get a report about it. And we played some of those reports out loud as uh, DAs. Uh, National district attorneys have expressed what they thought and found out about this system, and they'll probably do it again this time. So at the very least, it'll be on record, but there'll be no enforcement behind it to ensure justice. Right, because we see what happened. (laughs) No, go ahead. I thought you were done, Max. We're talking about you. Just hit him right there. I'm, I'm sorry. We're talking about Louisiana, where we just put ending slavery on the ballot, and you wouldn't have slavery if you didn't have slave catchers. Uh, they have a stat here that says, by, the, by its own tally, 67% of state police use of force in recent years were against black people, who make up only 33% of the state's population. It's, it's just so crazy, you know, and I think back to, you know, during the... Uh, the track of last was it last week or week before last when Malcolm X was talking in the bridging the gap segment and he's like you out here singing uh, we shall overcome and this was in the 60s he's talking about him he's like if you in the 20th century talking about we shall overcome then your government has failed you and then just hearing what you just said you know the wordsmith that you are is like you can't get justice from the Department of Justice you know and we saw Ferguson, that scathing Ferguson report, and the, this report, and that report. We see them Ohio. everywhere, but uh, everywhere, just justice, mm-hmm. just not. It doesn't happen. They go on record. 
This is a constitutional violation. These are rampant patterns and practices of racism uh, that lead all the way up to the top that are involved with uh, revenue generation and all these different things, and nobody's ever held accountable for it. And they make some damn suggestions. This is what we think you should do. And then the cities and the counties and the states thumb their fingers at them, and that's the end of the conversation. But like I said, at the very least, it's on record. Yeah, and it makes me think. So we just had Alonzo call in, and the U- imagine being him. The U.S. Supreme Court told him, your conviction was unconstitutional because it was racially motivated. It was based on a racially motivated law that was established. Your constitutional rights were violated, but we can't do anything about it. We can't make it retroactive. That's what they told him and 15, 1,600 other people. Now, you know, I'm getting angry behind it now. I've well, always been angry, but it's resurfacing the anger behind it. It's hard not to, uh, as James Baldwin so eloquently put it, um, yes. to be black is to be in a constant state of rage. Uh, because you see, you can see it. There's no veil over the eyes, and you can see what's going on, and that infuriates you. It's like, how could you let this continue? What's happening in Rikers? How could you let it continue? What's happening in Alabama, in Louisiana, in California? How can you let this continue? And we're even getting calls now from California's uh, representatives after going through all this so smoothly, have the nerve to say, they want to hear from the Department of Corrections before they pass this down. You want to hear from the people profiting the most on this before you – you want to hear from the slavers about whether or not you should end slavery. That's how it works now? Is that how it works? <laughs> it's it's crazy, the thought, the thought yeah. behind that. Yeah, like your, your focus should not be on what the prisons think. Their lives involved so millions. Yes. All right, you. So let's get into another track before we dive into a couple of other news stories that we have. All right. Ooh, we got a great list here. I don't know which one we want to do. <laughs> well, we got a list of the Negro and the South from 1965, narrated by Brother Ossie Davis, uh, with the song by Michael Kenwaku, Black Man in a White World. It shows mm-hmm. how we have been indoctrinated, and I think you'll get a lot out of it. Mm-hmm. When you're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org, with Max Parsons and Yusuf Hassan, and you're going to learn today. Be right back. Abolition, Abolition. Today. In 1895, Booker T. Washington declared, In all things that are purely social, we can be as separate as the fingers, yet one as the hand, and all things essential to mutual progress. By the end of the century, segregation was complete. The new South rose out of the ashes of the old, and the good nigger was the one who once again knew his place. But as a a rule, they are a very happy people. A a large percent of them do not worry uh, because they know that they're going be taken care of. I've had a number number of them to remark to me that, uh, well, they know Mr. Brown or Mr. Jones, Mr. Smith's going to take care of us. They know that. Uh, they know that they're not going hungry. 
and uh, they're not going to need for clothes as long as they'll work and do halfway right. They know that they're going to be taken care of. So they have no worries. White folks were so good to me to when I got sick and disabled to work, they just come in and bring me something to eat, clothes, and everything. Fed me, clothed me, and I had a house full of children, and they fed my children. Yes, I've been working all of my life, and the white folks raised me. Mister, I tell you the truth, I don't know what in the world I'd do without white folks. Now, that's the truth. And mistress, I'm just a white folks nigger. I'm a nigger and all of my children's a nigger. And all this community in here of Mississippi recognized, appreciated, and work for the white folks. He's not, the nigger is not a part of my family. As a result, I don't elect to have him sit and eat with me. As a result, I don't elect to have him belong to a club that I may belong to. I don't elect to... For Judge Obar, as for most Southern whites, out of the past has come a philosophy he calls the Southern way of life. The Negro and his place is at the heart of it. This is the way it has been. It's the history of the South. It's because we've been brought up like this. We have been taught like this. And we teach our children like this. And they'll teach their children like that. I think it is a matter that has been history all down through the years and will remain history. I've been low, I've been high, I've been sold all my life. I've got nothing left to pay. I've got nothing left to say. I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white, I'm in love, but I'm still sad, I found peace, but I'm not glad, on my nights and on my days, I've been trying wrong, I'm a black man in a white world, I'm a black man in a white world, I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white world feel like I've been here before I feel that knocking on my door I feel like I've been here before I feel that knocking on my door And I've lost it
Abolition. Abolition. You just heard the Negro in the South, 1965. And that was narrated by Ozzie Davis. And that was followed up by Black Man in the White World by Michael Kiwanuka. That song will really have you moving, but the lyrics are just so, so, so depressing. Welcome back to Abolition Today with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan, and you're going to learn today. That was a lot of information that we just got in that track there, Max. Man, the Negro in the South with Ozzy Davis from 1965, just so disgusting, such a paternal uh, perspective of black people in America overall, like we're here mm-hmm. to take care of you as long as you are good and you work hard. And who gets to judge whether you're good or not? Of course, they do. And then you heard the woman who in the video of that is in abject poverty as she's talking, his baby's laying around covered in flies, the house is filthy. Mm-hmm. And she's explaining how these white people have always taken care of her to her and her family and her community, as she said, we are white people's Negroes, niggers. Uh, to them, they have deified uh, the white people in that uh, in that story. They, they've made them into right. something that's more important to them than their family. Whereas on the other side of the coin, he was clearly saying, I don't consider them my family. You ain't eating with me. You ain't going to church with me. I don't want to see you in the movies with me. Don't try to hang out with me. That's not the relationship we got. It's the classic abusive relationship, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like the brutal abusive relationship. It's so classic. And as long as you do what they tell you to do, you're a good Negro. But when you decide to think for your damn self, and go higher than they have allowed your station, suddenly you're the enemy. And God forbid you put your hand up against them, they'll kill all of you. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, you know, that that, that ties in with uh, some of the other news stories we had. Like, uh, what was the one? I just had it. I wanted to mention that one. Where... uh, the guy was blaming black people for gun violence. I'm trying to find that article. Oh, they didn't Trump endorse, dude? Yeah. You know, it, it's it's sort of like... Uh, Blake Masters. Blake Masters. Yeah, Blake Masters. That's the guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and, it, and it, seemed, it comes from that same place. You know, it's coming from that same place of hatred, racism, bigotry. You know, that they just keep making these calls of saying everything is our fault. One you know, that they created, that's it. We They created this perfect world, and anything that's going wrong, blame the black man. That's their take on everything. Blame the black man. You know, one thing you even notice that it ties in, you know, we think of, uh, I always think of the Susan Smith case. Remember Susan Smith in Texas, the woman who murdered her children, and she blamed it on a black man. You know, that's that's always the case. You know, it's real easy. You can blame it on a black person. It was a black person who did it. It was a black person who did it. And no one bats an eye, no one questions that. 
And meanwhile, you know, we have people out here that are doing some very heinous things. Look at this uh, this pastor who plotted to kill thousands of black people with poisoned water. What was it? Poisoned water, Africa. biological weapons. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's only the article about him in South Africa, but it's not the first time we've heard this type of mentality. We've heard police officers saying it. We've heard preachers saying it. Who's the guy? Was it last week, week before last, where the guy stood in the pulpit and just gave, you know, he's just saying, y'all better leave us alone or we're going to start killing people. But somehow yeah, it's our fault. that was talking that nonsense. Well, not even nonsense, because yeah. I take it very serious. When somebody yeah, tells me they want to kill me, I believe them. That's how I roll. I don't know how y'all roll, yeah. but if somebody says, I want you dead to me, or even somebody that looks like me said, I want people who look like you dead, I believe them. And 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 just seeing, uh, you know, it's sort of like anything that they want to implement, it starts with us. Because there's another article that I wanted to get in to make people aware of. So this company, Axon, they uh, create tasers. They're the manufacturer, one of the manufacturers, major manufacturers of tasers. And Axon halts its plan for a taser drone as nine on ethics board resigned over the project. So they were planning on making a taser drone. And I want everyone to think about that for a second. A taser drone. drone. You know, something something straight out of uh, Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Uh, I already know who's going to be droning. I know who's going to yeah. be tasing already. That was the point. You 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 picked up on what I was saying. You know mm-hmm. where they're going to test it out. The same people that Palantir tested out on. When they wanted to start scanning people's license plates, they started in our communities. So that technology that they have to scan license plates started in our communities. Now they're using it all over the place. When it came to uh, using drones to scan faces in the crowd. It started doing, you know, the uh, protests. Everything starts with us. So quite naturally, it was going to be used on us. Yeah, these uh, slave catchers have no borders. There's nothing they won't do. They'll shoot you by remote control because if they'll Tase you. It's only a matter of time before there's bullets in there instead of tasers. Uh, and right. the remote control kill you just like they did that brother out in Dallas who they said was a cop killer and sent a robot to blow him up or how they do in yep. other nations uh, with the that drone. That was his due process. You know? And this other guy talking about black people and uh, the reason for all the gun violence and pointing out Chicago like many seem to tend to do completely forget about the things that you're supporting on a daily basis, like sending all these weapons over to uh, other nations uh, leading mm-hmm. up to a potential freaking nuclear war. Like you're sending weapons like it's going out of style, talking about what's happening in Chicago. <laughs> what about Chicago? Man. That's always what, what they a, say. What about Chicago? Exactly. Chicago don't have guided missiles being sent to them. But anyway, uh, there was another story 
two of them I wanted to get in real quick before we get into our, mm-hmm. our next thing is uh, one about a cop out in Georgia mm-hmm. who raped a woman in a traffic stop and made the man who was with her, probably her mate, partner, uh, lay on the ground in handcuffs and watch. So in Lithonia, Georgia, the slave catcher, mm-hmm. and they love saying ex-slave catcher after they get caught. He wasn't ex when he got caught. He was in uniform when it happened. He had a prior right. sexual allegation uh, with the Atlanta Police Department, and he pled guilty to raping a woman in a 2019 traffic stop. Uh, they say that in a release on Friday that 45-year-old David Wilborn pleaded guilty to charges including rape, aggravated assault, false imprisonment, and more. In, seven, in September of 19, Wilborn, according to the district attorney's office, made a stop in Del Cab by blocking a car with his patrol vehicle. The first took the driver out and ordered him on the ground. After asking for the passenger's identification, he ordered her to walk to the back of the vehicle, where he then brandished his weapon before raping her against the back of the damn car. Wilborn also told the victim to repeat that nothing happened, according to the DA's office. The officer then told the victim's friend he could get up off the ground and allowed them both to get back in the car and leave. The release from the DA's office said the victim immediately called police after arriving home and described the unknown police to law enforcement. Uh, wow. Following his guilty plea, Wilborn was sentenced to a term of life in prison to serve 25 years without parole with the balance on probation. And he must also register as a sex offender. Can you imagine this, man? This is the person you're paying his salary for. And he stopped right. your car, gets you out, the woman, or gets him, the driver out the man, makes him lay on the ground, handcuffs him, so he can watch you rape his partner. And then you rape the partner and threaten it at gunpoint, in full police uniform against the freaking car. And then you tell her not to say anything and threaten their lives. That's slave catchers. That's exactly what slave catchers do. Right. They don't see you as human. You're just prey. And they caught you. This is the one that got caught. Imagine the people that have decided they didn't want to give, risk their life and didn't say anything. Everything right. he's ever touched and should be investigated. Everything. And there's another yeah. officer. The former yeah. officer accused of dumping evidence turns himself in. A former Baton Rouge Police Department officer, <laughs> again, should be ex-slave catcher, turned himself in to authorities on Monday, June 6th, after facing arrest on some serious charges. He is accused of dumping guns that were part of an investigation into a trash pile. The chief had identified the former officers Benjamin Zarenge, according to the Central Police Chief Roger Cochran. Three guns were found by some kids in a neighborhood. The guns had been thrown in a box in a trash pile. And just thinking about that, you know, this guy <laughs> takes evidence, takes evidence, Good. and just throws it. Yeah, throws the guns away. What you dumping the guns for? You already know. What are you dumping the guns? Yeah, because he knows what happens when kids get a hold of guns. Uh, it was evidence. They he, don't know. It probably was something that would implicate him and others with him in crimes. Sure. With this princess sure. stuff on it. 
And rather than get to that point, you just dumped it anywhere and allowed children to find it. Of all people, children found the right. damn gun. Right. And, and again, everything he's ever touched needs to be investigated. Everything. Because not everything. just to find out if he's more of a criminal, but to find out if there's people you need to rescue right now who were falsely imprisoned or murdered by this guy or anything like that. There they could be people that are there where there's, ev- you know, exculpatory evidence, evidence that could free a person, prove their innocence, that just turned up missing. And clearly this could be a case like that. And they're probably not even going to go that far to look and see. And the reason we no. say that is because the track record shows that they don't go that far. They don't go that far. They always claim they don't have the resources to do such an investigation. And so people's lives are just lost in the shuffle. Like you, you just said, you don't care. Uh, you, you're wealthy enough to provide weapons for all of these city-states, but you can't find justice. The Department of Justice has no justice, right? That's how it works. Right. So people's lives are just thrown away and lost. And you, I don't know what you expected from Joe Biden, uh, you know, because he's been doing this to his, his whole career where he's been mm-hmm. incentivizing incarceration. Any problem that comes up, his answer is give slavers and slave catchers money. That's always his answer. And even now, right. uh, since he's been president, we've seen the first increase in the prison population in over a decade. Uh, just last week, and this is from an article, he said, in his address to the U.S. Conference of Mayors, Biden again made his position very clear when he told his audience, we shouldn't be cutting funding for police departments. I propose increasing funding, reflecting this calculated political stance, in addition to earmarking $651 million in his 2022 budget to boost local police hiring, the Biden administration had repeatedly encouraged state and local governments to use the $350 billion in discretionary funds given to them by the American Rescue Plan to expand police budgets. Indeed, both Biden and his spokespeople have proudly touted his signature COVID relief bill as a major stimulus for policing. Wow, a COVID relief bill as a major stimulus for policing in a national context already characterized by globally unparalleled police spending. I mean, what do you think a slaver is going to do that has never been held accountable? Hell, you didn't hold him accountable. You elected a president that you rewarded the man who recreated legalized slavery. Right. He wrote the he wrote uh Reagan's comprehensive crime control bill in 1984. He wrote the the uh, Clinton crime bill. So this is just Joe being Joe right here. This is a clear example of Joe being Joe. Prior to becoming vice president, he told everybody that his name has been on every uh, criminal justice bill since the 1970s. He was the guy that stood up in Congress talking about how uh, anybody that's involved in drugs or drug dealing should be going to jail. Uh, He don't care how they got that way. Just send them to jail. He even made laws on how to uh, take their properties or demolish their homes and make it all legal. 
this man was, is responsible for crimes against humanity, but he's president. So what did you expect him to do? Did you think the prison population wouldn't even increase with him at the helm? I mean, he even came out and said at one point just to placate people that they were going to end for-profit private prison contracts. What he didn't say is that those are just a small budget of the U.S. Uh, uh, prison budget. And in addition to that, those contracts, some of them don't come up for renewal until after his administration, 10, 15, 20 years down the line. Right. So there's no threat. It's right. All, it, it's just a fake. It, it, it's smoke and mirrors. You know, and, and I was going to say, and another blow to restorative justice for the people who have been the victims of what Biden and others have done, you know, there was a proposed clean slate bill that went before the state assembly in New York. And the clean slate bill was an econ- was a economic legislation. It was going to automatically seal conviction records for 2.3 million New Yorkers, eliminating barriers uh, for those, their records that uh, – barriers to employment, housing, educational opportunities, in place of a perpetual cycle of punishment and disassociation from the community. So Clean Slate supported initiative, initiatives for real opportunities for jobs, a home, and to learn new and productive skills and a chance to give back. State Assembly actually uh, shot that down. They didn't even allow it to go to vote. You know, we've heard this before. And so the Fortune Society put out a statement. Uh, They stated, we are incredibly disappointed that the New York State Assembly did not vote on the Clean Slate Act that would have significantly changed countless lives. This bill sent a clear signal that everyone deserves a chance to start again and that a conviction should not define who a person is for the rest of their life. By eliminating barriers that for far too long have prevented people with criminal legal system involvement from moving ahead and who are disproportionately people of color, Clean Slate charted a path to new opportunities, safer and healthy communities, and a stronger New York State economy. The failure to bring this measure to the Senate to the Assembly floor will not spell the end of this effort. We applaud the many advocates, organizations, and elected officials who championed Clean Slate. As a member of the Clean State New York Coalition, we will re, we will redouble our efforts to support future passage of this critical legislation so that people can move forward in supporting their communities and families, creating a stronger and more equitable New York for all of us. So here we go again, you know, with uh, enslavers, not just in law enforcement, you know, not just the president, but then here we have again a bill not being voted on, something that could change 2.3 million lives, Max. We know what they want, what they don't want, what their incentive is, and it's certainly not freedom. Right. Freedom is too expensive for them. Uh, it costs them too much money. So slavery is okay. And speaking of the slave catchers, I just want to squeeze in one more uh, story real quick. It's an update. Mm-hmm. And then we need to get into our next track. Um, sure. The police officer out in Michigan, Christopher Scher, who shot Patrick yes. Loyola in the back of the head on video and executed that man, has been charged with second-degree murder. Um 
you know, it's hard for me to even celebrate stuff like this because what is there to celebrate? You know, there's, right. there's nothing to celebrate. Slavery's still legal. If it's not this slave catcher, it's going to be another one doing the same damn thing uh, in a week, in two weeks, over and over again, three times a day on the average. And we're going to catch a few, and uh, it's going to be like sacrifices they make in order to uh, keep us from rising up and going mad uh, because of what's happening here. But we have all saw that murder, and we're all traumatized by it. We saw him straddle this man's back, put a gun to the back of his skull, and fire the trigger. Like, there's there's a right. big body there. You could have shot arms, legs. You could have uh, tased him. You could have did so many different things for you to aim at the back of his head. And point blank pull the trigger means there was no second chances that you were worried about. You ain't worried about this man surviving. He dared to walk away from you as a slave catcher, and you murdered him for it. And we see this happen to our children one too damn many times. It's been going on since the beginning. And with that being said, Mm -hmm. uh, let's go into our next track, which is Slavery and Its Effect on U.S. History by Christy Clark Pujara of the University of Wisconsin, Madison. And uh, that's going to be accompanied by some violin from Josh Vetti, and finished off with Bob Marley's versus 50 Cent's Stand Up For Your Club Rights by Kill Mr. DJ. It's one of his mashups. Trust me, it's a lot it is to say, but you're going to enjoy it. Uh, mm-hmm. You're going to learn today. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. The root of racism in the United States is rooted in slavery. Um, What makes slavery as it existed in the Americas, so North America, the uh, West Indies, and South America, unique from other forms of slavery that had existed throughout the world in every continent, in every community, was that for the first time, it's going to be attached almost solely to one race of people to make slavery and blackness synonymous. If you ask someone to close their eyes from the Western world and say, what does a slave look like? A black person appears. Um, And that was done for a very strategic reason. The number of indentured servants was decreasing. People were living longer. It makes more sense to... um, buy someone for a lifetime than it does for a number of years. You have European colonists increasingly wanting uh, communities completely free of native people who they had tried to and unsuccessfully enslave in mass. And you get a system where race-based slavery is written into law. And so you create race-based slavery and then a generation or so removed from that, people say, well, this is just normal and natural. That, that's just how it is. Uh, black people are slaves because that's the appropriate place for them, and white people are masters, um, forgetting that this was an artificial system that was created to fill a labor shortage and to enrich a few. Um, and the roots of racism uh, from the fall of slavery nationally um, in 1865 after the American Civil War are still rooted in that tradition of slavery. Uh, Understanding citizenship and whiteness as being synonymous come because we have race-based slavery. So if you have a country that calls itself into being that all men are created equal and everyone has inalienable rights, 
well, then why are some people enslaved? And you have to justify that. You have to rationalize that. And the rationale was they're not people in the same way that white people are people. Um, and so you exclude them from the human family. And this has uh, wide-ranging um, effects for people who aren't just black and white. It has wide-ranging effects for Asian Americans because citizenship is being interpreted as white. In 1790, we get a naturalization law that says only white people can become naturalized citizens, which means what happens when Chinese people come to America and Japanese people come to America and Indians come to America, when we get things like the Asian exclusion law and all of these things because we have uh, made citizenship and whiteness synonymous and blackness and slavery synonymous and Native people are in the nation, but outside of the nation. So if you want to understand racism in this country, you have to understand the history of slavery and how it becomes a race-based system. Madison, and that was accompanied by a dope, dope violin track by Josh Vietti, and followed by Bob Marley, 
versus 50 Cent. Stand up for your right. Stand up for your club rights. Kill Mr. DJ. Kill Mr. DJ. Mosh up. Mosh up. He killed it. it up, Max. Yeah, man. Man, you know, that's yeah, one man. of the signature things about this program is that we find the poetry and everything. You know what I mean? And uh, right. I just found out a few days ago that the Grammys are now going to start recognizing spoken word poets and social changers, uh, which is amazing because until now, spoken word category was dominated by people reading books while we had living legends going unrecognized like Gil Scott Haran and Mary Baraka uh, and so Mm -hmm. many others. So now we're going to have our own category where it's with or without music, spoken word, uh, which you'll be seeing me Ah. do some in the coming days in Vermont and North Carolina. And also social changes. I would I would love for that trophy to be named after either a Mary Barack or a Gil Scott Heron, you know, because when you talk spoken word, I mean, you know, two powerhouses yeah. in the spoken word uh, well, genre. I would say not just name the whole category after, but maybe a part of the category, because spoken word does include other things like love and sex poetry and stuff like that. And, you know, it may be a fantastic poem about uh, fellatio, but I don't think it should be receiving the Gil Scott uh, Heron Award. You know what I mean? So it might have to be like a subclass because spoken word it covers it's comedy, it's sex, it's love, for sure, it's social issues, it's everything. Yeah, that's that's just uh, my bias. You know, there's only <laughs> one type of spoken word for me, man. You know, but you're definitely right. I mean, you're the wordsmith. This is your category, so you you know for sure what it should be. Well, uh, I'm just saying that I, I don't want I don't want them to leave people out in spoken word. Uh, it's not all social change and social justice, although those are my favorites too. Uh, but mm-hmm. spoken word is about everything, man. Uh, we got comedians who are spoken word artists, and they they can make you crack up with a poem like. Tavis Brunson, rest in peace, when he used to do that poem, Crack, uh, he would have us all cracking up, you know? For sure. Uh, and, yeah, and I've got a few com- sure. comedic love pieces myself. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Well, we're coming up on the end of the program. We've got about five minutes left to cover whatever we got to cover and thank our sponsors before we get into our final segment, which is the Bridging the Gap segment. And it's uh, always one of the best parts of the program. We like to start it out with a bang and take it out the same way. So for those that stay from beginning to end, you get the best treats of all. Are you sir? For sure. Uh, one thing I want to do is uh, repeat the information for calling in in support of ACA3 in California tomorrow. Uh, that time again is 9.30 a.m. Pacific, 12.30 p.m. Eastern, and whatever it is in between for your time zone. I guess that's 11 Central and 10 Mountain. Uh, The number to call, again, is 877-226-8163, and the access code is 648862. So I definitely wanted to make sure I got that in. Uh, We covered a lot tonight, Max, so I don't have any other news stories. I I, I do have Uh, one more. Okay. I watched the live January 6th committee hearings day one. Day two is tomorrow. Ah. Tomorrow's a big day in many ways. Next coming days is going to be incredible. 
Uh, it was a powerful presentation. Uh, I'm very curious why they haven't started rounding people up because if you're going to openly uh, show that these were treasonous uh, occurrences of insurrection trying to overthrow the government, the people you're accusing of it, uh, it uh, should not be walking around free. <laughs> so right. I'm just wondering when they're going to start doing the roundups, and I'm looking forward to seeing the rest because they are bringing the receipts. Mm. Do you you have any idea when they're going to start up again? Tomorrow will be the next one from what I understand. Okay. So they're planning on doing this over several weeks, probably all the way up until the middle of June, July. Uh, there's going to be a lot of revelations coming out of this. They're showing America exactly what happened. Uh, and, you know, for me, the biggest image that I remember seeing that day and also on the hearings recently was the image of these racist white supremacists in Trump gear and in military gear beating police to death with Blue Lives Matter and U.S. Uh, flags. One guy was stabbing the policeman with a big U.S. flag, and another one was beating him with the Blue Lives Matter flag. That's the image that's going to stick in my mind. With that being said, I want to wow. thank you guys for tuning in tonight. Make sure you check us out live next week, uh, where we'll be live from Vermont, the granddaddy of all exception clauses. And we have a series of events there. You definitely want to check it out. But tune in, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard, next week, uh, Sunday. We're live from Vermont with Abolition Today. Yes. So we want to thank our sponsors and partners, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, the I Am We Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, SEMA Urge Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, Black Talk Radio Network, and the Abolished Slavery National Network. Abolition Today is available on all major podcast platforms, also, remember to join the movement at AbolishSlavery.us to become part of the solution. You can text END THE EXCEPTION, all one word, no spaces, to 52886. Follow the prompts to send a signed petition on your behalf to your congressional reps in support of the proposed 28th Amendment to repeal and replace the exception clause of the 13th Amendment. We have a real good treat for you this evening in Bridging the Gap. It's Frederick Douglass. Speaking on the three boxes, and that's going to be narrated by Ozzie Davis, followed by Black Rage by Lauren Hill. We'll be back next Sunday, June 19th, God willing, Juneteenth, live that's right. from Vermont, live from Vermont, with another master class on slavery abolition. So until next week, don't forget to call in tomorrow for ACA3. Think about abolition today. Peace and blessings be upon you all. Peace. Abolition. Abolition. It was my good fortune to be present at Abraham Lincoln's inauguration in March 1865, after his re-election as president, and to hear on that occasion his remarkable inaugural address. A series of important events followed soon after the second inauguration of Mr. Lincoln, conspicuous amongst which was the fall of Richmond. The collapse of the rebellion was now not long delayed, though it did not perish, without adding to its long list of atrocities, one which sent a thrill of horror throughout the civilized world in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, a man so amiable, so kind, so humane and honest, that one is at a loss to know how he could have had an enemy on earth. I was in Rochester 
when the news of Mr. Lincoln's death was received. Our citizens, not knowing what else to do in the agony of the hour, betook themselves to City Hall. Though all hearts ached for utterance, few felt like speaking. But I was called upon and spoke out of the fullness of my heart. And happily, I gave expression to so much of the soul of the people present that my voice was several times utterly silenced by the sympathetic tumult of the great audience. I have resided long in Rochester and made many speeches there which more or less touched the hearts of my hearers. But never till this day was I brought into such close accord with them. When the war for the Union was substantially ended and peace dawned upon the land, when the gigantic system of American slavery was finally abolished and forever prohibited by the organic law of the land, a strange feeling came over me. My great and exceeding joy over these stupendous achievements, especially over the abolition of slavery, which had been the deepest desire and the great labor of my life, was slightly tinged with a feeling of sadness. The anti-slavery platform had performed its work and my voice was no longer needed. What should I do? The answer was not long in coming. Though slavery was abolished, the wrongs of my people were not ended. Though they were not slaves, they were not yet quite free. No man can be truly free whose liberty is dependent upon the thought, feeling, and action of others and who has himself no means in his own hands for guarding, protecting, defending, and maintaining that liberty. Yet the Negro, after his emancipation, was precisely in this state of destitution. The law on the side of freedom is of great advantage only where there is power to make that law respected. The government felt that it had done enough for the former slaves. It had made them free, and henceforth they must make their own way in the world. Yet they had none of the conditions for self-preservation or self-protection. They were free from the individual masters, but the slaves of society. The old master class simply drove them off the plantation and told them they were no longer wanted there. I therefore soon found that the Negro still had a cause and that he needed my voice and pen with others to plead for it. I called upon the government to assist the landless Negroes of the South by colonizing them on lands abandoned by the slaveholders as they had retreated before the advancing Union Army. I urged further that these former slaves be equipped with implements to till the soil and arms to defend themselves. From the first, I saw no chance of bettering the condition of the freedman until he should cease to be merely a freedman and should become a citizen. I insisted that there was no safety for him, nor for anybody else in America outside the American government, that to guard, protect, and maintain his liberty, the freedman should have the ballot, that the liberties of the American people were dependent upon the ballot box, the jury box, and the cartridge box, that without these, no class of people could live and flourish in this country. And this was now the word for the hour with me.
and the word to which the people of the North willingly listened when I spoke. However, regarding as I did, the elective franchise as one of the great powers by which all civil rights are obtained, enjoyed, and maintained under our form of government, and the one without which freedom to any class is delusive if not impossible, I set myself to work with whatever force and energy I possessed to secure this power for the recently emancipated millions. Suffering and worsening, like human packages tied up in strings. Black rage can come from all these kinds of things. Black rage founded on blatant denial, economic subsistence survival, deafening silence and social control. Black rage is founded on wounds in the soul. When the dogs bite, when the bees sing, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember all these kinds of things, and then I don't fear so bad. Black race founded, fed us self hatred. Surprise of this, never alone. 
Hi, my name is Jeanette Smith. I am a slavery abolitionist. Some of you may know me. I'm doing this recording because I would like to ask if any of you can help with some financial assistance. Max and Yusuf do not like to ask for money, so I would like to ask on their behalf because they and other abolitionists pull money out of their own pockets, and this is so important. So if you can help, you can find the information at the top of the Facebook page for Abolition Today. Thank you.